0: Alistair Campbell, it is great to see you. You're smiling already. That's because you just made me laugh by showing me your research notes. (laughs) Which involved, I think, two or three lines. And it was to remind me of the exact titles you held between 97 and 2003. And they are these, I believe you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Prime Minister's Official Spokesman and Downing Street Press Secretary between 97 and 2000 for Tony Blair. And then also, obviously, for Tony Blair, Downing Street Director of Communications and Strategy from 2000 to 2003, which... Sounds like a slightly grander title.
1: I don't know what the change was about, really. I don't. I'm not sure that that much changed. I think it was to do with the fact that we created something called the Strategic Communications Unit. Might have been that. Can't remember.
0: You then became the story and left, and oh. you, well, and you, have you have now, you have now kind of reinvented yourself, but still very much banging the Labour drum, and you are. I mean, you, let's face it. You were front and center a lot of the time when you were supposedly in a in a more backseat role in government. But you you now, I mean, you're you have a far bigger voice the most Labour MPs, if not almost all Labour MPs. And so it's really exciting to talk to you because we are in a general election year, or we think we are. So I've got 20 questions for you. Right. uh, My first question is this, who is going to win the general election and how big a majority will Keir Starmer get if you think he will get one at all? Obviously, <laughs> predictions are a mug's game, and I'm not taking you for a mug. But I, I just want to get your hunch, your sense, and if and if I can puncture what you might wish for, and get your analyst's hat on rather than your sort of cheerleader's hat on.
1: Okay. Well, I am. Um, if you if you listened to the the podcast, which you I think think has given me this platform and this voice that you think I have, or part of it, then I'm 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 kind of. A professional pessimist on there. I'm constantly saying to Rory Stewart, stop saying when Keir was in government, because I think that's a very important mindset to have. I don't think you should ever, ever, ever take it for granted. I think I'd probably say Keir Starmer will be prime minister, which is a pretty amazing achievement, given where Labour were a few years ago. And I think the majority could be anything from non-existent to massive. Now, I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but I really, I really find it hard at the moment to to read the the landscape because I think that, I think that people are just sort of in a very very strange place about politics generally. But I honestly think if Labour get if Labour do a lot of good stuff between now and the general election, it could be a landslide. If it was to, if it was tomorrow, I think it'd be a lot tighter than
0: that. Okay, what sort of good stuff? do you think Starmer might come out with? And what sort of good stuff would you like him to come out with? Because there is a sense that we don't quite know enough about what a Labour government would look like. Clearly, Starmer is risk averse. He probably hopes that the Tories will carry on tearing themselves apart. People are fed up. They want to change. But in order to encourage a proper majority, you might want more from him. And I wonder what that looks like.
1: Well, it's interesting how this is this sort of sense has developed that he's very, very risk averse. I think in some ways he is, and in other ways he's not. If you think, I cannot imagine any circumstances in which Tony Blair would have expelled a former leader of the Labour Party from the party. That was quite a risk. I even think in relation to what's happening now in Israel-Gaza, he's taken a lot of criticism for his position on, particularly on the ceasefire when he... Everybody was saying, lots of people were saying, call for a ceasefire. And he was saying, I'm holding to this position. And he was trying to be very kind of on the one hand on the other. In its own terms, that was a risk politically. Um, And I think he's, you know, paid a bit of a price for that. I think that, and what I think he's trying to do, he's got these five missions. And if you actually drill down one by one on what he says he wants to do via those missions, there's a lot of change in there. What he hasn't yet done is sort of pack that down into something that he can go on the television or go on social media for half a minute to a minute and say, bang, 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 this is what's going to change. I think that's coming. But I think that what I'd like to see, I'd like to see, I'd like to see him put public standards right at the heart of the campaign. I think if he doesn't, there's a risk that the whole Johnson trust thing just kind of gets lost in the wash, whereas actually Rishi Sunak's got to be tied fundamentally to them. So I like that on a campaigning sense, and I also think it's important for sort of restoring values in politics. Anyway, I'd like to see him maybe be much bolder in calling out the disaster that Brexit is, and in saying even if we're not going to go back in, we're going to have to fix the mess. I'd like him to do. I'd like him to do much more about the whole kind of public service reform agenda, and I think push back on this idea that you know the, the Tories. Because we have a very right-wing press, which infects the way the broadcasters cover politics as well, and now with your friend GB News there, they're, you know, even pushing even further, right? I just think calling some of that stuff out every now and then a bit more aggressively. I, I sometimes get the feeling with Labour at the moment that they, they don't understand that sometimes you need to be attacked to show what you're about. Whereas sometimes I feel they close down the attacks too quickly. Now, nobody's doing. He's trying to make himself as small a target as possible. I get that. I'd like to see a bigger target, because that way, the public will have a better sense of what they actually want to do.
0: There are so many things to pick up on there, and I just have to pick you up on this GB News point.
1: <laughs> don't drive it. Don't dive into the trap.
0: <laughs> I go on GB News to puncture the echo chamber, Alistair, to reach an audience that, that you know. might not be reaching with the rest of politics.
1: That's probably true. Well, I don't know. I think we probably do get quite a lot of... I don't know how many people watch GB News. I've got no idea. I just... Do you know what I don't like? I, listen, I think it's perfectly good for you to go on there. But it's interesting. It was the first... Before we started chatting on the interview it was the first thing you mentioned to me uh, you said you were wearing a suit because you'd just been on gb news and you then said to me why you did it look in general i'm all in favor of getting out there um, but if you think about like we're doing this interview on monday who was all over the media this morning barely making any coherent sense at all but lucy fraser the culture secretary going on about the perception of bias on the bbc whilst at the same time saying GB News is a wonderful addition to the media landscape. I mean, you know, fair play you go on there and put your point of view, but I don't think anybody would say it's not biased.
0: Funnily enough, because we are just talking there about who you might or might not reach with the rest of politics, and we will talk about the rest of politics in some detail later, but I was messaging an older friend of mine who is definitely not a Labour voter, okay? Just no way And she has listened, I think, to every single The Rest is Politics episode, Mm. which which is a a credit to you guys. I asked her what she would ask you, because I I thought it would be an an interesting idea to get questions put to you from someone who's not in your echo chamber. Here's the first one. And this is my third question overall. Does Alistair think that the Labour government under Starmer will attempt to reverse Brexit? Uh, No. You look miserable. I've, I, I, it makes me feel miserable. <laughs> but as an electoral strategist, as an election strategist, do you seriously think it would be in Starmer and Labour's interest to try to refight that war now?
1: Almost certainly not. And, you know, a Labour strategist would say to me, uh, somebody who's in the strategy team now would say to me, look, look where we are. We're 20 points ahead. You, were the guy, used to be obsessed about winning and said the Labour Party's not obsessed enough about winning. And you've got to hand it to them. I mean, Keir Starmer's come in is essentially said there's three stages to his strategy. Show that he's different to Corbyn, right? Show the Labour Party's changed since Corbyn. but well, he's definitely done that. I don't think there's anybody there. And the Tories keep trying to say, you sat there with Corbyn. I don't think the public are buying that. I think they, they, they understand the party's changed. Secondly, show that the Tories are, you know, unfit for the job. I think he's done a pretty good job in, you know, they've helped a lot, but I think he's pushed on that as well. And now showing where Labour's different. What I do think is, you know, Wayne Gretzky, the great ice hockey player, skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been. I think on the European debate, I think the public are ahead of the politicians on that, including people who voted Brexit. You know, a lot of people who voted Brexit think, uh, look, some people still think it was the right thing to do. And, you, you know, you have to respect that. They voted for it, and they still think it was the right thing to do. But an awful lot of people who voted Brexit genuinely now think it was a bad thing to do, and that they were conned and they were lied to, which they were. So I think Labour should be in a place of saying, you know, we respect the results of the referendum, brackets, even though there was lots of laws broken and even though, you know, the lies, etc. But we now have to accept it hasn't worked for the country. It is damaging our country, damaging the economy. So Labour's, I mentioned the missions, Labour's number one mission is growth. If you're going to grow the economy, you're going to have to fix the mess with Brexit and these trading arrangements. So I don't think they will. In fact, I'm pretty sure they won't. You can tell your friend. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you keep listening. Uh, actually, if she, if she if she listened to every single one, but you know, she knows the answer to that question anyway.
0: Her second question so is this it, number four. This is our fifth question. Her second question, but I, I just have to pause that for a moment because actually, what's really interesting is whether Starmer, if he if he wins comfortably and has a strong first term whether he then might start advancing the argument toward, or sounding yeah. up the public and you know, ahead of the next general election, the one after this one, and say, look, guys, to the people, the British people, do do we want to revisit this? I, I suspect he won't, and I worry that if he were to do that, then this sort of once in a generation vote might not look like much of a yeah. once in a generation vote anymore.
1: Listen, I've just realised that I've got my headphones in without plugging them in. You're supposed to be the
0: expert at
1: this. I'm so not an expert on tech. No, but the other thing I would say is that we one of the reasons, one of the things that really sort of infuriates me about the way the, the, the European debate takes place within the UK and has done for decades, is it's almost like you've got this static thing over there called the European Union. They've got us, you've got Britain, and we're we're sort of making great changes, et cetera. The other thing I point out regularly... In fact, we're recording the podcast tomorrow. We're going to talk about these amazing demonstrations in Germany over the, the weekend against the, the far right. Um, you know, The fact that, that those demonstrations are happening is evidence of a rising problem within Germany of the far right. So you could have a situation, you say, oh, well, Keir Steyer, a first term, second term, you know, he hasn't even got won the first one yet. But you could be in a situation where Marine Le Pen is the president. Where this guy Wilders is a dominant figure within the European Union debate, she so might get you a place where even somebody like me is feeling a bit queasy. But at the same time, I I just think that one of the things that's gone wrong in Europe is that we you know the Franco-German motor has always been the driver of the European Union, and bizarrely since we left, we were all the kind of we were always the third big force in there. Since we left, that Franco-German motor has become a bit weaker. Anyway. Tell your friend I'm very, very grateful that she's listened to every single one. here comes. She just like Rory
0: Stewart. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what she said. She said, I've listened to every The Rest is Politics since it started and admire there, that's yours and Rory's, breadth and depth of international politics as well as our own political scene. Both presenters have charisma, in my opinion. <laughs> there you go.
1: Thank right, you very a, much.
0: Her second question, you have actually sort of touched on this already, but she says, asks, how could Starmer back Corbyn but so when he was part of Corbyn's shadow cabinet, but later distanced himself from Corbyn and his ilk, it makes him impossible to vote for, in my opinion.
1: What I would say to her on that is that I I th- I actually think that one of one of Keir Starmer's less commented upon, but I think very relevant qualities, and I and I say quality here, I think he's quite ruthless, and I think I I don't believe he ever thought Jeremy Corbyn was going to be prime minister. I think he thought when he became an MP, quite late in life, you know, he's into his 50s when he became an MP. I think he thought fairly soon after that, you know, he might actually be in the kind of leadership bracket. But he, that was never going to happen if he wasn't inside the shadow cabinet. Um, now, I think he went into the shadow cabinet. I think he insisted on taking the Brexit job because it was a serious job where actually the role of the opposition at that time mattered. I think he hates being in opposition. I think he's a creature of government. And so I I guess what I'm saying to your friend, I'd love to know her name. What's her name? Tricia. What I'd say to Tricia is I think that Keir was was kind of working out what what, what was his role in potentially saving the Labour Party from oblivion. I think there was a chance that the Labour Party absolutely died under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, now, that doesn't mean that Jeremy Corbyn didn't have strengths. He does have strengths, but he was never, ever going to be prime minister and he should never have been leader of the Labour Party for that reason. Um, and I think Keir just sort of felt, I've got to stay in to be in a place, maybe to get the Labour Party back into power in future. So I think she should respect him for that.
0: Why did you get, and I'm just a short answer on this, because we, we don't, I don't want to revisit it too much, but why did you get so caught up in, so passionate, so tribal about remaining in the european union and i I say that from the position of someone who voted remain but i felt and i don't mean this in a patronizing or dismissive way to people who voted brexit but within my decision making process i felt i voted with my head and not my heart because i could see problems with our membership of the eu remoteness of democracy i like the idea broadly speaking of sovereignty and so forth why did you care so much about it? You
1: know what? Partly because I hadn't cared enough during the referendum. I didn't really get involved during the referendum campaign. I thought Cameron sort of seems to be on the case. He's hitting the economic message very, very hard. I felt there was a problem with that, and I did raise it once or twice with George Osborne. But I didn't really get involved, and I kind of wish I had now. I'm not saying I could have made a difference, but there's there's a part of me that thinks... I could have made a difference. So then when it came to post the referendum, I actually thought on the day itself, I thought this is a total disaster for Britain. And I still feel that. I really felt it was a disaster for Britain. I actually think a lot of the Brexiteers thought it was a disaster. I think in his heart, Boris Johnson thought it was a disaster for Britain. On the moment, I know you didn't want a long answer, so sorry about this. On the on the, the moment it was announced, I was in an ITV studio. And I think it was Tom Bradby who was in the chair and he said, we've now reached the point where remain can't win as all the results were coming in. And I was in a chair opposite Liam Fox, Brexiteer. He looked absolutely panic stricken. He didn't look happy. He didn't look like he was going to, he didn't punch the air. He looked panic stricken. And I think we saw that the next day with Johnson and Gove. They, they, were, they looked like two little children who'd been taught with their, caught with their hands somewhere where their hands shouldn't be. And they was like, what have we done? Now, I then felt, as things developed, that the a referendum, a second referendum on what the deal actually was going to be was perfectly legitimate democratically. And I thought, I'll be honest, I thought that was the best way to stop this madness happening.
0: Back to election year, is there any sense, I've gauged your, your feelings of where we are and what might happen, but are there any similarities, notwithstanding your caution, between 2024 and 1997? Is there an overlap? And one of the... Interesting myths, I think, about 97 was this idea that the country massively went for Tony Blair and for Labour. Because we were, well, we remember, don't This has been written about, but we remember those, the flag waving scenes on Downing Street. But wasn't that basically sort of the families of Labour Party staffers? And didn't you guys really win that election <laughs> because the Tories stayed at home? And that's not to say that that wasn't a, a victory for you guys because you and Blair were able to persuade enough Conservative voters that they didn't have to turn out to say no to Blair, to say no to New Labour. They might not have been able to bring themselves to vote for you, but they didn't vote for the Tories. So are there some overlaps, if, if that analysis is correct, between now and 97? And what were you feeling on the eve of that election? Did you predict a landslide? Were you excited and optimistic? Or, or where, where were you mentally at that point? So many questions in there. If you're only allowed 20, there's about seven
1: of that question. Um, first of all, on the similarities and the, the overlap, I don't think you should ever compare like for like. You know, we're in a different period historically. But clearly, you've got some that are you know, blindingly obvious. The Conservatives have been in power for quite a long time. The Conservatives seem to attract an awful lot of scandals to themselves. The Conservatives seem to be very, very divided. The Labour Party has a leader... Who has been signaling that one of his big messages is, is the Labour Party's changed? You have, I'd say, the economic circumstances probably worse than they were. I'd say culturally, a sense that Britain has lost its confidence, but you feel there's kind of energy just around the corner if only it can be tapped. So I'd say that is, you know, where I'd say there's a lot of similarity going on. You're right about. The, you know, we, we, this is the sort of the, the quirk of our electoral system. You know, we did, we did, we got a far bigger majority than we thought we were going to get. But we didn't, as you say, we didn't take the whole country in terms of, you know, we didn't get 60,
0: 70% of the vote. We got 40 odd percent of the vote. Major won more votes, didn't take 92 than you guys did in 97.
1: Correct. Correct. So, you know, and that is, you have to play the system you've got as it happens, I don't think it's a great electoral system, but, you know, it really came, it was to our benefit in 97 and in 2001. How did I feel the night before? Well, there's an event, this is the advantage of, of having kept a diary. And because, you know, sometimes people say, how did you feel? And the truth, the honest answer is you you don't remember. Um, But what I recorded in my diary was that I didn't really allow myself to think we'd won until the night before. And, I remember there was a there's a line in my diary where I actually broke down in tears because I was talking to my one of my kids, Callum, and he said, "Are we going to win?" And I remember the the thought of him saying "we" just sort of triggered something in me because I mean, you know, part of you feels you've not seen your kids enough, you've not been home enough, and but he sort of seemed to feel like he felt he was part of it. I felt we were going to win. I did not think we were going to get that majority.
0: You say it's difficult to remember, but was that victory night when the, when the, I mean, you couldn't imagine, right, for someone of your views and your position, two more contrasting nights than that night in in May 97 and then the Brexit night. I mean, just worlds apart for you as a person, politically. And and personally, I I guess. Can you remember just how thrilling that was? Was it thrilling or were you just deeply exhausted?
1: I was deeply exhausted. And, you know, looking back... I'll always sort of resent and regret this. Looking back, I was clearly depressed as well, I think. I was going through a depressive phase, partly, probably exhaustion, partly stress of, you know, because the the thing about our election system is that there are pluses and minuses of this, but you go through, and it was, if you remember, it was the longest election campaign that was legally possible. John Major decided he was going to have a very long campaign. So you're absolutely exhausted. You're slightly scared. You're thinking, I mean, I'm thinking we've got to get right. We've got to get back to London. We've got to go through all that. You know, it's a new dawn, is it not? have a bit of celebration, all that stuff. And then we've got to grab a couple of hours sleep and then start a new job the next morning. In his case, Prime Minister, in my case, kind of trying to bring together this government communications machine that we had completely smashed in the previous weeks and months and years. So I was depressed, to be honest. I didn't enjoy it, and I resent that. There's a, there's a, If you you look it up, there's an interview I did in Sedgefield with John Simpson on the BBC, when John Simpson's desperately trying to get me to be celebratory, and I'm say, well, let's just see how it goes. And yeah, the results so far seem quite good, but you know, I just wasn't
0: wasn't in the mood at all. Was there any sense of the panic that you felt Johnson and Gove had? In 2016, back in ninety-seven. You've you've wanted this for as long as you'd wanted it. You'd worked as hard as you had. And now you've actually got to run a country. I'm one of those people who I don't the only crowd scenes I ever enjoy
1: are to do with sport. Football, you know, when Burnley scored a goal and we're all in it together. I love it, right? Doesn't but happen that often these days. We're not having a great season, Matt. I'll give you that. Um we've certainly conceded more than we've scored. But I still you, you know, so I can get that. I can sometimes get it in music, but not that much. M- music, I prefer to be kind of individual, listening to music and loving it. And so I don't like weddings. I don't like things where people are meant to feel the same. And I felt maybe that night in 1997, I was meant to feel something and I wasn't feeling it. I was feeling, right, we've won. Now what's next? We Now tomorrow's another day. I was really in that zone. And I think also it's very hard to decompress from a campaign zone. Your mindset is locked. And
0: see, I I just didn't want to be there. It was really odd. Can you give us just a sense, and then we're going to come back to today, but can you give us a sense of what it is like to be at the heart of government, to have the sort of responsibility that you had, but also to observe the far greater responsibility that the Prime Minister had Did you feel that responsibility? Was it an enormous weight on your shoulders or like a top striker in the Premier League? Is that just what you do?
1: No, you don't. I definitely felt the, I felt the weight on him and I felt that I shared some of that weight. And part of my job was to help him deal with that weight. But we were, you know, we were really, I I think I was in a school the other day and there was this, um, this girl said... uh, she was 15, 16. She said, has politics always been this bad? Which was a sad question in a way. But, you know, so her, she first became probably Brexit, around Brexit. She was starting to be conscious that parents were talking about it. She knew that it mattered and what have you. And actually, the, so I was able to say to her, no, it wasn't always this bad. I think actually we were quite a good government. But I think one of the reasons was that we really did have a good team. And I've not, I think the of the many, many, many faults that I've seen in the Conservatives in recent years, they they don't they just don't work together. Now, we had divisions and differences of opinion, and, you know, famously Tony and Gordon sometimes raging at each other, but we had a really good team. So it wasn't just that I felt like I was a striker. Um, I felt we had a whole team of really good people who made Tony's life a lot easier than it otherwise would have been.
0: Um, and some of them you'll know and some of them you've never heard of. Starmer isn't, is he, as charismatic as Tony Blair? He doesn't seem to inspire people in the way that perhaps Blair did. Do, do you think that's fair? I mean, you, I, I can imagine you really don't want that to be the case. But if it is true, in your view, can Starmer turn that to his advantage after three prime ministers since we last went to the polls, the sort of sense of Tory chaos? That's certainly a sense that Labour want, want us to all grasp.
1: Yeah, it's, listen, it's five prime ministers since Labour were last in power. And I would argue Cameron, you know, austerity, Brexit, I'll never forgive him for either of those. But he sort of looked the part. He's got a bit of gravitas. He's serious. Theresa May given a terrible hand and tried to play it with a bit of kind of principle and dignity and all that. It, what's gone wrong with this country, I'm afraid, is it? It's since Brexit and Johnson. Johnson, disaster for the country, disaster for politics. Liz Truss, an utter embarrassment. And now Rishi Sunak kind of trying to make, again, a bit like Theresa May, trying to make the best of a very, very bad wicket and not doing it very well. So I I, I also think, by the way, the chaos. I saw Kier made a speech today and he said, you know, that he he, he wants to stop politics just being a soap opera. He's not, he's not Tony Blair. He's not Barack Obama. He's, you know, he's not Macron, but he's serious. He's a serious bloke. And I think that's quite a good thing. They were serious as well, but they had something, they had that little bit of magic that people think you need in politics. I Also, don't underestimate, Matt, how if he wins, which everybody says he's going to, if he becomes prime minister, the office doesn't have to give you a lot. Now, I, I would say, for example, with Rishi Sunak, I don't I don't I actually don't think he's up to much. And one of the reasons for that is look, he's been gifted the prim, the premiership, right? And he's got it in and he's doing his best, but it's not very good. I think what Keir has done, Keir has vastly improved in the time he's been there. I was talking to somebody today who's not a political, who's, she's he's not like Tricia, in the but he's not a sort of he's very much not a Labour person. But he, and I wasn't even talking about Keir. He said, you know, I've got to say Keir Starmer's starting to get, I'm starting to walk with Keir Starmer. And he said, I think, you know, he's grown, he said. He's grown, he's done, he's getting better. I think people see that. So it's not all about charisma. Added to which I do think after the kind of shit show of Johnson and all the show, I mean, look, you know, people say, people still say Keir Starmer's is boring. And I say, yeah, well, Boris Johnson is really interesting, right? Uh, it's really interesting that that guy became Prime Minister. It's really interesting that he thinks that there's nothing wrong with lying in Parliament. Liz Truss trust is really interesting. That was a really interesting experiment.
0: It went wrong. We have a bit of serious now. What would you say if... Cause what if question I, we are we on now? We're now 13. It, it's... <laughs> It's fascinating to me, I'm glad you get this format, Alistair, it's fascinating to me how people respond in green rooms, you know, when they go into the television mm-hmm. streets and they come up against their political nemesis, or you bump into someone in the corridors of two MPs on the other sides, opposite sides, bump into each other in the House of Parliament, whatever. If you came across Boris Johnson socially, right? As you might, because there are some broadcasters, say, who have friends on both sides of the aisle or whatever. If you were to come across Boris Johnson socially, would you talk to him? And if you did, would you be civil to him?
1: Yeah, of course i talk to him. Um, I'd, I'd really like it if he came on the podcast. I've met members of his family in recent weeks and I was perfectly civil to them. But I do, f- I, but I find it, I wouldn't be able not to say what I think, which is that I think in the pursuit of his own. Ambition to be prime minister, and in the sort of you know the way he sort of conducts himself, where he thinks it's all about him, he has done massive damage to the country
0: and to our politics. I would definitely say that to him. And he would say if he were here that he didn't lie to Parliament, wouldn't he?
1: Well, he might do, but he did. (laughs) You know, and the Privileges Committee report. By the way, I think where Rishi Sunak did himself massive damage. Talked about this on the podcast last week. I really do think where he did himself massive damage was in not supporting, in a in a voluble way, the privileges committee report to Johnson in Parliament. I really think that damaged him. Um, but no, I'd be I'd be I'd be civil. I'd be civil, but I'd be very very clear and blunt about what I think.
0: Let me ask you a follow up question about your tone, Alistair, when you because I relentlessly hold the Tories to account as I see it. But I hope I do it civilly. I mean, it's robust. I might say someone is simply not up to the job, (laughs) unsuitable to be this, unsuitable to be that. You go a bit further. I think it's fair to say sometimes. Do you ever regret how far you go on social media?
1: On social media? Give me, a, give you'd have to give me, a, for instance. And I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to give like you a massive research. You
0: I, I, <laughs> I follow you on Twitter, Alistair. I mean, you you really come out swinging from time to time. You know you do.
1: Yeah. Do I regret? Uh I don't think I do.
0: So it's probably I could probably go back and find things I've said and
1: thought. I wish I hadn't said that. Probably. But I think sometimes you do have to go a little bit over the top to make your point. Partly that's because that's the world we're in. I wish it wasn't like that. Rory Stewart's sure always saying on the podcast, you know, if I do a tweet sort of, you know, just read a wonderful book about the impact of the history of this on the geography of that, of the people go, yeah, know, you whereas if you sort of come out and say so-and-so is the worst person who's ever lived and you get, you get a response. I don't think I do, I go over the top sometimes with the people that I know go over the top. So if I'm engaging, if you're engaging with or about Nigel Farage, you kind of feel you've got to go over the top a bit. Aaron Banks, I like going over the top
0: with Aaron Banks.
1: But I think, and sometimes in interviews, I I go over the top. I, I do
0: sometimes go over the top. I'm curious to know what you think or what you, how you would advise Labour if you were part of the machine now. I should check, are, are you advising Labour? Was that a question? Was that
1: one of the 40-20 questions? <laughs> it's, a,
0: it's a subset question. It's a cheap question.
1: <laughs> so um, do I talk to Labour politicians in a way that I hope they listen to what I say? <laughs> but Is that formally advising? I don't think so. I mean, I speak to, I do, I do occasionally sort of, give what I would consider to be be informed advice, but I'm not an advisor. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So, okay, I think Starmer said, unless I'm misremembering recently, that, and people can check this on themselves, but I think he said something along the lines of, you know, we need to fight fire with fire this year ahead of the election. And my worry is that I, as someone who does believe in standards in public life, and I think that's what you were saying earlier, isn't it? You want Starmer to make that part of it, Okay. Well, if the Tories go low, surely you would advise Labour and Starmer not to sink to those levels. And we've seen a bit of it. We've seen Labour go quite low, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe once or twice, maybe more in the last year or so. Would you say no, just take the high road, win the argument, don't go dirty?
1: I would say for Keir himself, as the leader of the Labour Party, the more he's out there with a positive vision for the future of the country, the better. But... There has to be within the Labour Party a a proper rebuttal operation. I mean, heaven knows what the Tories are putting out to their kind of chosen social media targets. I suspect it won't be pretty. And I think Labour has to monitor that really, really closely and target it where it where it goes bad. So, you know, I think, for example, during the Brexit referendum, I think one of the reasons that Cameron Osborne lost was because they decided there was going to be no blue on blue. It gave the other side a free ride with all the lies. So I think I'd, I wouldn't want Labour to go down to the depths that the Tories go to at times. But there's got to be people inside the Labour Party who are kind of tracking that. And there has to be strong rebuttal. And you have to call it out. So it's got you've got to be, t- you know, this is a tough campaign. You know, we've this is going to be the first British election, first American election presidential election where you've got artificial intelligence at the heart of it these deep fakes they're going to be a problem they're going to be a problem so you can't I think that's what he meant fight fire with fire that if you're going to play dirty then we're going to take you on but I hope it doesn't get to the depths that the Tories maybe want to take it
0: substance okay here and and there's, what question we, on that? we've now done we've done 15 so we're on 16 okay now, with we could talk about so many different areas. We could talk about the NHS. We could talk about education. We could talk about the police. I'm going to pick two, and then I want to, and then we'll go, my final question, is sort of more personal. Alistair Campbell, like how do you live your life, sort of thing. How are you doing? Okay. So you said
1: earlier we're going to talk loads about the podcast, which we haven't talked about. No, no, really? we've got to
0: talk about that. No, no, we've got to talk about that. <laughs> Uh, one of my just
1: plugged plug the podcast. Trish. Well, we did right.
0: a lot of plugging in the podcast, but I do actually want to this is a very good point, but that'll be part of the more personal stuff. Okay, let me try and fit two into two into one. Tell me where you how you would generate growth, and because that's so important, isn't it? And unless you're going to raise taxes in order to, to fill the coffers of the treasury, we need growth. And the other and there are some people who think if you raise taxes you, you're not going to get growth you might get the opposite but we, so you can address that if you want the, the other thing is just tag it on if you would but if you're a starman, and you become prime minister what would you do about the boats now the fact that i even ask you that question is almost we're playing into the hands of the culture wars you know we've got a cost of living crisis we've got the nhs waiting lists all that stuff we've got the need for growth we've got questions of whether we should be raising taxes yeah or... but you just been on gb
1: news so you got you got in, you got infected
0: <laughs> while you were there they they put it into your chip whether we like <laughs> it or not it has been talked about so two part question to cheat then we can okay. have it on the podcast what how do you generate growth we, and how do taxes fit in on that just a, I, I can't it's not a comprehensive answer cuz we don't have time and then what would you do about the boats
1: okay on Oh, listen, I think they're absolutely right to say that, you know, that, that to, to make growth a big part of their agenda. I think it's the number one of their five missions. And I hope they don't back down on this green growth stuff as well, because I actually do think that there's a lot Labour can learn from what Biden's done with the inflation reduction. Now. now, I know that, you know, we're not the world's reserve currency and America's a much bigger economy and so forth. But I think this I actually think that the, the Tories are banking. On this notion that they can really go for labour, on saying we're going to borrow to invest in the green agenda. Okay, I mean this is a government that's borrowed till the kind of pips are squeaking, It's taxed until the pips are squeaking. So I think Labour needs to be more confident about their own economic agenda. So I would, I would put quite a lot of chips onto the onto the green agenda. I would also, if on, on, similarly, I think that Labour can and this this helps his political strategy as well can focus much more on this idea of public private partnership and you know all sorts of different sectors so i think that you put those two things together i think the next thing i think that labor has to have a message on education and skills that is about the long term okay so it's all about long long term plan for growth i think you can put that out there and that's what i would do um On the boats, I think you're right, by the way, that we're only talking about it because the Tories have made it such a big thing. I do not think it is a crisis. It is a problem which has to be addressed. The crisis that has to be addressed or the potential crisis that has to be addressed is how do we deal with the fact that immigration, migration is going to get, become a bigger, not a smaller problem in the long term. And the answer to that, I think, is internationalism. So... You know, if you think of the 400 million pounds that's been spent on Rwanda, OK, this plan that has led to literally nobody apart from Home Secretaries leaving Britain for Rwanda. Right. Imagine if you had that 400 million pounds and you've gone and said to, to the French and other European countries, right, we're bringing 400 million quid to the table. How much do you want to bring that we start to work on this together and try to kind of address this problem together? It is about processing. It is about making sure you've got proper security systems in place. Instead of which, we've pulled ourselves out of the European Union. We've given ourselves this, you know, and this is Sunak, by the way. This is how bad at politics he is. He didn't have to make it one of his big five, but he did. And now he's he's hung on it. And then when you had that stuff recently, and by the way, if this had been, if we'd had had a balanced media rather than a massively right-wing media that stuff that came out recently i think it was on the bbc about what sunak actually thinks thought about it when he was chancellor he'd be finished with that but you know they want to help him they want to move on so i think you're not i think i guess what i'm saying is you deal with the boats essentially by saying it's not about the boats it's about how we deal with immigration more generally, and you've got to have a proper plan for that.
0: Is it four hundred mil or is it two hundred and fifty million? Rwanda and 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 also, have have we not already given? Hasn't the government already given money to the French to try and sort this?
1: Yeah, they have,
0: uh, and they, but but you know they,
1: they've they've not they're not really working with the French on fixing this.
0: There is an argument that Costama could be more effective in the way that he gets collaboration from the French and others because they don't see him as burdened by Brexit. That you, might, you if, yeah. if chemistry comes into it, if personality, if personal history comes into it, that might count for something.
1: Yeah, it might. I'll tell you the other thing that I really worry about. Although Ke- and Keir's got an opportunity if he does become prime minister, there will be a lot of interest in him. <clears throat> but we have to accept there is less of a focus on the UK because we're at the European Union now. Uh, we, have, we have damaged our
0: soft power and our hard power in the world okay let's talk about podcasts your podcast involves you and rory stewart and this podcast just is a sort of very linear you're laughing a very linear interview so two-part question again is there space for my sort of podcast still The sort of it's mm-hmm. not as a proper one-on-one interview Uh, you know you do enjoy doing this and secondly give us a sense of why you think your podcast the Restless politics has been so outrageously successful i mean to the point that you and rory will go and be on stage at the royal albert hall with enormous numbers of people there that is not easy i mean it's not easy in a post-pandemic britain to get those sorts of numbers i mean probably never easy but it's impressive well, is there a place for
1: yours? Yes, definitely. Uh, I think interview. I I, I like in- I like I like interviewing. I like being interviewed, but only if it's like what I like about yours is that you know you it's got sort of like it's, there's an idea to it. Twenty questions, okay? Now it can go anywhere, but it's like you know it makes it quite snappy. And I probably waffled on too long, but you can always edit my answers down a bit. And so yeah, there's definitely a place for that. I don't know why I was kicked in the way that it is. I think a lot of it is to do with what. A lot of people, and by the way, not just, you know, what 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 you kind of Farage's and your Aaron Banks's and that lot will want to say is, oh, yeah, but it's just the sort of, you know, it's the kind of metropolitan elite talking to themselves, me and Rory Stewart, right? But when we did the Albert Hall, a third of the people there were under 30. We have massive listenership amongst young young people who I think are just turned off by what they see of politics. Don't particularly follow Parliament. I think the Prime Minister's question is just a bit of a silly shouting match. Don't read the newspapers. We actually, I did, we did an event, I did an event recently with a load of students. Not one person there read a newspaper. Now, they, they knew what the newspapers were like and what they did, and they followed stuff online. But it's a kind of, I think it's a new way of, of doing politics. I think a lot of our listeners are very frustrated by politics and by the media. And I think they feel that we're we're both a bit, a bit politics and a bit media but we're not fully both and so that's why i think that and added to which as trisha said you know we 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 are very very interested in the world beyond britain and i think people are people are way more interested you know we talk about we get we get messages from people say we've never heard anything about country x on the mainstream news ever and you guys talk about it a bit so we try to talk about the stuff that Matters to Britain. So we're doing one tomorrow. We're going to talk about, we're probably going to talk about Ukraine because it's slipping down the agenda. Probably going to talk about the Middle East because people are still talk about it a lot. we talk about Germany, as I said, because of these amazing demonstrations. And then for Britain, we're probably going to talk a little bit about why the SNP have decided this new line that Labour are definitely going to win. And that's kind of quite niche internal politics. And I think we're probably going to talk a bit about, how Rishi Sunak was able to find
0: 150 judges when we've got a criminal justice system that's collapsing. Eighteenth question, and again, hybrid to cheat. What sort <laughs> of research? We started this conversation about my research. What sort of research do you do, if any, for your podcast? And how deeply competitive are you with the news agents' podcast? Um, how much research? Quite
1: a lot. It depends on time. If I've, got, if I've, we've got a, we've got a really good team, and we've got you know, people who do some research, when we've, do, we decide what we're going to talk about. And it's it's usually fairly obvious, but, you know, we both said this week we really want to talk about Ukraine. Now, we will do our own, they will do a bit of research, but actually we'll probably do our own research. And that will be a mixture of reading and talking to people. With the Q&A, it's less easy to do the research because we don't really decide what the questions are until we're doing it. And we get thousands of questions. So, but I, you know, I, I probably do a few hours Research, which is reading, I read um, the German stuff. For example, I follow the German media much more closely than Roy does. So today, I've sent him a couple of, I've sent him this very long article that that exploded this whole sort of protest thing that's going on at the weekend. I sent him that to read. He, he, he might read it. He might not. He probably will. How competitive? Not. I mean, look, I like the fact that we just keep trouncing them in the charts, but I'm not that competitive. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> do you actually trance them?
1: Much. I mean, they they look, they look do a podcast every day. Occasionally they get top episode, but that's when we haven't pot, re, done anything for three or four days. Uh, I mean, the I saw when George Osborne launched his with Ed Balls, he was very excited, but you always have one day at the top. And then, pshh. so yeah, I'm quite competitive, man. I'm quite competitive.
0: Again, the li- listeners to our podcast, to this podcast, can do their own research of these charts rather than just take your word for it, Alistair. Okay, yeah. two more questions. One, why do you support Burnley, a Lancashire club, when you were born in Yorkshire? And because part because. of that answer... Hang on, there's part of that answer...
1: You've got about 50 questions. It's a complete con, this podcast.
0: <laughs> as part of that answer, because presumably you started supporting Burnley as a boy, a young boy, when you were little as well as sort of enjoying watching football, did you ever think that one day you'd be appearing in, at the Royal Albert Hall or in a previous incarnation, you'd have been helping run the country? No, is the
1: answer to the second part. Uh, the first part, I don't know what I thought I'd do when I was a kid, but the first part is that, I, so I was born in Yorkshire, as you say, and I grew up in Keighley. It's kind of West Yorkshire. It's not far from Lancashire and Burnley's not far from, from Yorkshire. And, You know, I'm not very tribal, man. I'm just not a very tribal sort of guy. So, you know, (laughs) borders. I mean, I think without borders, no. So we were my when I
0: was don't start having a pop at borders, Alice. Because if
1: if reform or if the Tories
0: get wind of that, you know,
1: know. (laughs) no, it's the new European, new European is thinking without borders. Um, No, but I, I, so we were when I was. First saw Burnley when I was four. We were reigning league champions, and we used to go. My dad wasn't. My dad was a party thistles supporter. He was Scottish, and we used to sort of go one week Burnley, one week Leeds, sometimes Halifax, sometimes Huddersfield. But I just love Burnley. I always loved Burnley. It's part of the colours, but also the fact that they were reigning league champions at the time helped. I just, I, I, I do have a visceral connection to the place, though. It's like you know, it's quite
0: deep. It does something for you. In other words. Yeah, big time. Final question. You've talked so much about your mental health and I'm sure have done a lot for other people because when someone in a position of profile is able to reveal their own vulnerabilities, I'm sure, I'm convinced it really helps people. I've talked to, have a lower profile than you, of course, but I've talked about my own struggles with anxiety, with OCD in the past and have certainly had feedback that it has helped others. Now, you are seen, yeah. you are seen, and, you know, as a sort of, I don't know, if we're talking in old language, an alpha male. So to, to, so to see you're laughing again. So for some people, you know, maybe for, a, for, for someone who identifies themselves as such, whether there really is such a thing, the idea that you could have vulnerabilities is interesting and maybe reassuring. So if you don't mind me asking, how are you yourself at the moment with your mental health? And are you... Are you having a good time? Because the, the, as we've talked about the podcast, it's an election year. It's exciting. Are you, are, you, are you enjoying life at the moment?
1: Oh, am I enjoying life at the moment? I, I find I'm never great in January. There's definitely something seasonal with me. And I normally go through a bit of a rocky Christmas and a bit of a rocky New Year, which I did have. And then by the first week of January, I'm starting to fly again. And I haven't flown this January yet. I've been okay. I'll give you a couple of tips if you kind of want to analyze my mental health. One is my voice. I've, I've really been struggling with my voice. It's been very weak. I've been coughing a lot and um and it's amazing how many people notice it on the podcast as well. I've had loads of people on the podcast and say, You're right, a bit worried about you. <laughs> because my voice goes very thin and very reedy. And the second thing is that I either don't sleep enough or I sleep too much. At the moment, I'm kind of in the sleeping too much, you know. So I'm I'm not I'm not in bad shape at the moment. In in the book I wrote about depression, I said I've got this scale, one to ten. One is manic out of control, obsessive happiness, ten is suicide, and I don't like to be this side of the of five. And I'm kind of I'm probably about five, five and a half at the moment. Two and th- three and four is where I like to be. It's
0: interesting interesting because you seem in very good spirits, warm and sort of, well, I was going to say, relax. You seem relaxed. It's interesting. Yeah.
1: No, I've been, it's, uh, but you know, we we perform, don't we? We, 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 I'm not in a bad shape, but I'm not in great shape. I'm not in, I'm not in, um, I'm not motoring at the moment. I'm doing the podcast tomorrow and I'll do it fine. I'll worry about my voice. But then I'll be looking for a couple of hours just to kind
0: of chill yeah. out a bit. If you are feeling bad, if you're on the scale in a place where you don't want to be, do you still watch Burnley? And if Burnley win, does that this is and this is not intended as a trite question, but if Burnley win, can that sort of lift you out te- at least temporarily of your your of your depression?
1: No, the mo the, the 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 moment can. So there are moments in the game where it can, but not totally, no, no. And I don't think it is a trite question because I think, you know, we're all when I feel like that, I'll tell you what sometimes happens if I'm very depressed, I won't go because I know that it won't, or because I'll I, I don't want to face all the conversations I know I'm gonna have. And most of the time I love going and I love the conversations. I love the fact that I love the fact that the bloke I haven't seen for ages wants to have a chat about politics or they want to talk about football or whatever. But very every now and then I won't go because of it. But it's quite rare. No, the thing that gets me out of it is, is kind of understanding that I've got out of it before. And I you I have lots of different sort of tactics that I use to sort of help me through it. But no, I'm not. I'm, anyway, how are you,
0: Matt? Well, it's interesting. You so said about January. I don't know what it was to do with January. I mean, just the last week, I felt just tremors in my mental health. And I think I'm sort of pulling out of that. But I mean, I, I had a really, diff- really difficult few months during the pandemic. It was really, really tough. Really yeah. tough. For me, I just because I have this anxiety that I might do harm to people accidentally. So the idea of potentially giving COVID to lots of people was just horrific. And I was really struggling to convince myself that I didn't have COVID. I mean, the number of PCR tests I did before the lateral flows came out, I did about 30. Wow.
1: Bizarrely, I I enjoyed the wrong word, but I, I was fine during COVID. I was working a lot. I was working on a book. We haven't talked about the book. It's just come out in paperback, by the way.
0: Tell us about the book.
1: But what can I do? How politics has gone wrong, what you can do to fix it. Okay. And it's, yesterday went to number one at Audible. Well, I was really chuffed about that. You do love winning, don't you? I love winning. Well, that was, that was another book, Winners and How They Succeed. I do love winning. Yeah, I love winning,
0: but I hate losing
1: more. It's anyway.
0: You are going to lead the pandemic.
1: Yeah, during the pandemic. So I had a lot to do. I was writing obsessively about how terrible Johnson was at his handling of it and getting away with murder because of our right-wing press. And I was right, was I not? But then the other thing, to discover that actually Fiona, who I've been with now for more than 40 years, and we've you know, had lots of ups and downs and lots of stresses and what have you, but actually I kind of realised if there was one person in the world that I had to be kind of
0: locked up with, it's her. So that, that was a kind of, that was great. That is a very good place. I was going to say it's a very good place end the podcast, the idea of yeah. you actually discovering after 40 years that you were with your soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty good. Listen, before we go, this isn't a question. Just because we talked about mental health, I want to tell people that 116123 is the number for the Samaritans. Alistair, it's very good to talk to you. See you soon.